your left. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Romans, chapter 4. And we're going to begin about verse 6 through 16 today. Um, sometimes you, you read about a man who, who had two wives, and in essence then two families, and, and neither really is aware of the other. A news article that came out, a headline in 1898 in the New York Times declared, died leaving two families. Frank T. Daniels, a pension examiner, led a dual life. Quite the headliner. And I'm sure if you saw that, you would want to read the article. Well, let me read it for you, all right? Here's what it said. Lansing, Michigan, January 6th, the death of Frank T. Daniels, a personal a pension examiner who was located in Reading, Pennsylvania for several years has disclosed the fact that he had two wives and children by each. His body was brought to this county for burial today. Awaiting the arrival were his wife and three children whom he had been supporting without interruption. The body was accompanied from Pennsylvania by another wife and two children. Each family was ignorant of the existence of the other. Nah, uh, it doesn't say whether the wives knew about the other wives and the families ahead of time or if when they got off the train or whatever it was in Lansing, Michigan, and went, hello. But here we have this story. It must have been most unusual and interesting funeral that, that anybody had ever been around, probably for quite a while. When I first read that, and I've read a whole bunch of others this week, because this is not unusual. It happens more often than people realize. But I remember reading in my grandfather's Toastmaster journal a cartoon that he had in there. And in this cartoon, it said this, I think it's cruel to send the poor guy to jail for bigamy. He's obviously insane. Right, and you think, okay, <laughs> that made me wonder about Frank Daniels and many of the others as well. Uh, this has got to be some kind of insanity that you would live these two separate lives and no one would know anything about it. But the fact is that the great patriarch Abraham, who we love to tout as a man of faith, he had two families as well. And in its uniqueness in this, he had these two wives, well, at least a wife and a concubine. Uh, Hagar and Sarah are the women that are brought forth in our discussion in the book of Genesis in his life. Now, he's married to Sarah, and, but they don't have children. And God has told him, you're going to have a child. And so she says, well, I can't do that. So you and Hagar can have a child, and it'll be mine. And things get messed up from there. So Hagar gave Abraham a son by the name of Ishmael. And Sarah gives, eventually, at the age of 90, a son to Abraham, and they call him Isaac. You can read more about that, especially in Genesis chapter 1, as we kind of get into some of the divisiveness in these two families, all right? Now, on a physical level, these, these sons, they become the father of two great people groups. Ishmael becomes what we recognize as the father of the Arab nations. Isaac becomes a father of the Jewish nation. 
And, and if you know the story of that, these two family groups eventually make a mark in our world through history in such significant ways. Many of Ishmael's descendants identify themselves today as Muslims, and many of Isaac's descendants identify themselves as Jewish. No wonder they don't like each other, right? But the problem rests in this, inheritance. All right, that's, that's where the problem really lies. So as significant as this historical reality, these are not the two families that Paul is going to talk about that Abraham has. Now I got you thinking, okay, what do you mean? <laughs> All right, Paul brings in the fact that he's got two other families. And we're going to dig into that here in, in Romans chapter 4. All right, and, and so we're going to find also the question is, can you and I trace our lineage back to Abraham through one of these guys? That'd be interesting, won't it? Well, here we go. Let's take a look at these two families of Abraham. But I want us to go to Galatians chapter 4 before we do that. Because Paul is also going to use this definition of these two families when he's talking to the churches in Galatia in chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. And he says these two physical families of Abraham, they actually produce a figurative or an allegorical families of Abraham of a totally different kind. So let's begin in Galatians chapter 4 verse 21. It says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now, now this may be interpreted allegorically, Paul says. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to, listen, to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman, with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free, free woman. Now, ironically, Paul is using Hagar, this is Ishmael's mother, to represent the physical Israel, Jewish people, that are descendant through Isaac. So he's kind of swapping roles here. We're kind of looking at this allegorically, all right? So this family then of Ishmael, of Hagar, they are really... Paul is saying the descendants of ethnic Jews who came from Abraham by physical birth or Israel according to the flesh. 
He says, it's a family that followed the old covenant that was given at Mount Sinai to Moses. That's who this family is. They're marked by their slavery to the law. And it's this kind of spiritual slavery. And these are the ones that are centered around visible Jerusalem. Like Ishmael, he says, the Jewish people now who are focused on the law of God, which he's been spending all this time here in the opening chapters of the book of Romans talking about the law. He says, these people, this family that's focused on the law, the Jewish people who live by law, they're now cast out. They're gone. God does not want them in his family, so to speak. He's cast them aside. And in the same passage, Sarah now is used to represent Abraham's other family, his, quote, spiritual family, the family of the promise. And according to the Spirit, this family, he says, is not centered on physical Jerusalem, but it is centered on the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem from above, and that they are the family of what is now a new covenant. Not the covenant that was given at Mount Sinai, but the covenant was given in that upper room when he broke bread with his disciples, and which we remember by our communion. It's a new covenant that is given. So the distinction between two families was made, he tells us, even in the Old Testament times under the Old Covenant. And so Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, when he says this, It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, then he says, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now in this new covenant, this new era of relationship that God has with us through Jesus, all right, the spiritual descendants of Abraham, the children of the promise, are all those people who are trusting in God's promise of salvation through Jesus Christ, whether they be Jews or Arabs, Gentiles, us, it doesn't matter. If we put our faith and our trust in Jesus in this new covenant, we become descendants of Abraham. The spiritual family then of Abraham is the church. It's his Christian family. So why should we care about Abraham today? I mean, he lived about 4,000 years ago. And, and, if, and if you could pick your ancestors, we probably would not choose Abraham as one of them. At least I couldn't go back, at least I don't think I could, back to Abraham. Maybe someplace back maybe six, 700 years ago or more, there might have been some interaction. But I, I can't really find that. All right, But for the gospel in the New Testament, there's a difference here. Paul brings him up here in Romans, and he spends the entire fourth chapter helping us understand about this family that, that, that Abraham has that is not of the physical flesh, but a family that is of the promise and is spiritual. We need to remember that the first few decades of the church, a large part of the audience 
that were receiving the gospel message and were reading the, the, the writings of the apostles, they were the Jewish people. All right, that's, and so he's writing to them, telling them, in essence, you have no inheritance because you're Jewish. Your inheritance now is based upon your relationship with Jesus. And so he's got to write this and communicate this. You'll see, for the Jews, Abraham was one of two key figures, along with Moses, in, in their Jewish origin and, and in their history. However, the patriarch Abraham, their ancestor and forefathers of all the Jews, they are his physical family. But God wants him to be a part of his spiritual family, which is different. But the Jews, they had this serious problem in their understanding of their relationship with Abraham. They thought that their relationship with him, because they were Jewish, was sufficient enough for salvation. Matter of fact, they believed that you had to become Jewish in order for you to eventually get to heaven, even through Jesus. And so they wanted you to become Jewish first. And so this is why Paul is writing them to clear up this misunderstanding. You don't have to become Jewish physically in order to get to heaven. You see, as Christians, we are Abraham's other family. And lucky for us, we get the inheritance. Because that's how it's going to be played out in all of this. So here's the point in, in Romans chapter 4, 6 through 16. That those who are a part of the family of faith receive the inheritance that is laid out for them. As a child, I learned a song here in church in the children's ministry that, that really told me that I was a part of Abraham's family. Just a simple little song that said, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so were you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm, left arm. You know, we'd go through all the little motions and stuff, right? You know, we are. We are part of the family of Abraham, not necessarily because of physical descent, but because of the spiritual uniting that takes place in Christ Jesus. Having two families, though, can create quite a problem, especially at the funeral. <laughs> and, then, and then when you try to look at the will and the inheritance and who's getting what, all right? So you kind of have to work through all these details. So, so what does Abraham leave behind as an inheritance for us? The land of Canaan, right? Well, maybe, maybe not, all right? What Paul is telling us in chapter 4 is this. What he's going to leave behind for us is the blessing of grace and the forgiveness of sins. That's what you get to inherit. Let's look at Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Now, in these few verses, David wants us to know about God's grace. 
Now, Jason just really demonstrated the grace and the goodness of King David as he displayed that to Mephibosheth, all right? But that's what God does to us. And so he writes this understanding for us, and he wants us to know that God's grace is sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins, even when we don't deserve it because we've blown things and we have become lawbreakers, and that this grace is received through faith. This psalm that Paul is quoting, Psalm 32, was written after David had committed his what we might say unforgivable sin with Bathsheba. And he's confronted by Nathan, the prophet, about that sin. So in this scenario of his life, David broke at least three of the Ten Commandments. He's striking out, all right? I mean, this is what happens. All right, so in these commandments, what he he broke, he coveted his neighbor's wife. Commandment number ten. And then that moved him to commit adultery. Commandment number seven. And then to cover all that up, he murders Uriah. Commandment number six. And yet, David writes this statement here in Psalm 32 that says, Hey, you've forgiven my sins. You've covered them up and you're not going to count them against me. How can he do that? Because it's the grace of God and God declared that David was righteous even though he was lawless. And he does the same thing for us. See, today, to say that a person is blessed implies that he knows that his sins are forgiven and they're covered and that God is not going to count them against him on that day of judgment. Man, that is, that is blessed. All right? In a real sense, what we're reading here in Romans 4 is the culmination of the explanation of justification. How's that sound? All right, it, what we're reading is the culmination of the explanation of justification by grace. And he really began this discussion back in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. And it casts a light on this whole discussion, and especially on the thesis that he lays out for us in Romans 3, 28, when he says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of law. So even though we have broken the law, as David has, now your three Ten Commandments may not be 10, 7, and 6. It may have been 1, 2, and 3, which, my goodness, that would have been probably worse on my standard because that's all about God. Whatever it is that you've broken... We are justified because of the grace of God by putting our faith in Him. Now, there are seven implica- several implications, I think, that come from this. The first is this justification of the wicked is really the same as forgiving sins. All right? He's justified us by forgiving. Second, and closely related, is, is the equivalence of justification with the imputation of crediting righteousness to Abraham when Abraham doesn't deserve it. And we've already talked about that in a previous sermon, that that righteousness is imputed on the sinner's account. It's not his righteousness, but it is the righteousness of Jesus that he clothes us or robes us in his righteousness by what he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. And finally, it, it has to do with the meaning of the statement, apart from works of law. 
Okay, so in these verses, Paul is telling us that to be justified apart from works means that God does not hold our sinful works, our misdeeds, our law-breaking against us. To be justified by faith apart from works of law means that God counts us righteous because of our faith, not because of what we do. And he's going to really lay that out in this discussion here about Abraham and when he was credited righteous. So to be an heir in this inheritance of the promise, one has to be a part of the family of faith, not the physical genetic family. All right? So let's look at Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Is this blessing then, Paul says... Only for the circumcised or for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Well, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. That's the second time that Paul brings up this discussion about circumcision in the book of Romans. And he asks this important question. Is the blessing of God only for those who are Jewish, who have been circumcised? Or does the blessing of God come to other people who, who are outside of that covenantal relationship? That's what he wants to know. Is this, is this salvation going to be offered for just a certain few people? Or is it offered for all people? So by asking the question, Paul has reintroduced the second of a main points that asserted in his closing of chapter 3. His point is this. You see, the Old Testament itself shows that God justified uncircumcised men. And if he did it then, then he can do it today. Because he justified Abraham before he was circumcised. So it leaves us with this impression that the Jews thought that if a man were circumcised, it was a proof of his right standing with God, and so therefore he would get to go to heaven, not based upon anything he did, but just simply purely for the fact that he's Jewish. And they believed that. But what Paul's about to say isn't going to be easy for them to hear. Because, see, faith is what connects us to God, to one another, and to Abraham not circumcision, nor any other work of the law. It does not determine those relationships. Righteousness works, are righteous works, as Paul is going to show. They're, they're appropriate and they're important to display our relationship with God. But they're not going to get you into heaven because you've already blown it. That's what he's telling us. I mean, this is a fearful blow to those who claim that there could be no salvation without circumcision. There were a group of guys who came up to Antioch as Paul was up there preaching and teaching and and helping create the church in that community. And they were people who were what we classify as Judaizers. 
And they began to tell the people of Antioch, you've got to be baptized. Listen to what he says in Acts 15.1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. He says it doesn't matter. You're not, not based on faith, fellas, is what they're telling them. You've got to become Jewish first. And if you can't enter into this Old Testament covenant, there's no way you're going to receive the blessing of God in your salvation. Now, if you compare the age of Abraham at the giving of the promise and his age at circumcision, you're going to see that Abraham was declared righteous at least 14 years before he was circumcised. Circumcision has nothing to do with righteousness. So then why was circumcision given? Paul's going to lay that out for us here in chapter 4 as well. Paul uses two words that relate to the purpose and the function. He says it's a sign and a seal. All right? God told Abraham in Genesis 17, 11, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. I mean, it's no, no doubt why Paul uses that word sign here, because he's taking it directly out of Genesis 17. God says it's a sign demonstrating that we've got a covenant. All right, so here we have this sign. And that's what its common purpose is, was a sign of the covenant, a sign of belonging to this covenantal family consisting of Abraham and his early descendants and those who would later on become the Jewish nation. Paul, however, does not mean that circumcision was not given as a sign of Abraham's faith or his justification, right? nor could it serve such a purpose for anyone else, because it's, if, it's, if it's applied in infancy, because God says when, by the time they're eight days old, they need to be circumcised. Well, at eight days old, it has nothing to do with faith. It has nothing to do with law or works. All it has to do is to identify you are part of a covenantal family, a relationship here. Because even if that child were circumcised at the age of eight days old, does not mean he's going to grow up a believer in God. And let me tell you, there are a lot of Jewish people today who do not believe in God. They're atheistic. But Paul does say that Abraham's own circumcision functioned as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, which he was still uncircumcised. A seal is, is like the signet ring or, or, or its impression. It serves as a mark of ownership or identification. And God is saying, you are my people. And so he identifies him with this sign and this seal. So by giving Abraham the sign of circumcision, God is providing him with the outward and a visible authentication of the righteousness by faith, which he had already displayed and was credited as righteous while he was uncircumcised. To Abraham, it was a guarantee of God's trustworthiness in his promise in fulfilling it. The main point of Paul is this, that Abraham was already justified before he received circumcision since a seal does not confer that which it ratifies but assumes that it already exists. If the king is going to write a letter, he's going to seal that letter because he's already written it. He doesn't seal an empty thing hoping that it contains his wishes. 
It brings me to the ultimate question which Paul raises here in our text. Is the blessing of forgiveness for Jews only or for Gentiles also? There's no question that, that Abraham is the father and the founder of the Jewish nation. We know that. And that being able to claim him as an ancestor is a great privilege. We understand that. But here, however, Paul is speaking about Abraham's spiritual fatherhood, which is determined not by physical descent, but by imitation of Abraham's faith. Listen to what he writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, 8, and 9. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Then he goes on further down in that chapter in verse 29, and he says this, he says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So if we are in Christ, then we are the heir to the inheritance. Because of faith, not works of law. All right? So Abraham then is a the father of all who believe, which was God's ultimate purpose for him from the very beginning. All Christians have the privilege of calling Abraham father. So we can sing that song, Father Abraham, right? Had many sons. I'm one of them and so are you. All right? The Jews have this privilege of being children of Abraham then in two senses, not only being a direct descendant physiologically of him, but also if they put their faith and their trust in Jesus, they are also a child of Abraham by faith in the promise of God. But if they don't have faith, they don't inherit. See, inheritance is this. It's promised to Abraham, it comes by faith, not by obedience to law. Romans 4, 13 through 16. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Chapter 4, the theme develops like this. We are justified by faith apart from works. So the first eight verses, he lays it out. We are justified by faith apart from works. It's not what you do. But then he goes in in verses 9 through 12 and he says, but we are justified by faith apart from circumcision. And finally he wraps it up here in verses 13 through 16. He says, we're justified by faith 
apart from law. The focus here is on promise, which is a natural corollary of grace and faith. Grace focuses not on what man can do, but what on God has done for us in his promise to do that. And on what he promises to give to sinners who, as a result of their faith, will then be declared righteous because of Christ. All sinners can do and must do is believe God's promise and accept his gifts that are offered through Jesus Christ. See, the full scope of God's promise to Abraham was laid out here in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, when he said, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Faith. He was promised the possession of the land descendants as numerous as the stars and the role of being the source of blessing for all nations because of his faith. Not only does this promise include the land of Canaan that they would go into inherit, but the land of a new heaven and earth connected with the promise. You see, as to his offspring, the, the sperma, which is the word that is used there, his seed... The reference is to all believers. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says that technically it is really one seed, not multiple. And that one seed and heir of Abraham is Jesus Christ. But all who put their trust in God's Son, in Jesus Christ, are joined to him and they become Abraham's seed and heirs as well. Listen to what he says here in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, to his seed. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, all right, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. He's speaking about Jesus but then he goes on to say in Galatians 3, 26 through 29, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized, which wasn't that great earlier, as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, if you belong to Jesus then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. Who gets to inherit everything? Those who believe in Jesus, put their faith in him. The promise will be fulfilled to Abraham and his offspring, not by obedience to the law, but by faith. Abraham's family is still growing today. Isn't that great? And any individual can have a share in the abundance of this inheritance through the righteousness that comes by faith, not by works. If people are still going to, to try and attain their salvation by obedience to the law, then faith, he says, has no value. The promise is worthless. It is null and void. And these two ways of salvation are incompatible. Either, it's either going to be faith or it's going to be works. You can't have them both. All right? 
If inheritance comes by the law or by works, then faith would have no role in the process, and the Gentiles, you and I, are ultimately left out. Sorry. Faith and promise, however, those two go together. And they belong to an order that is distinct from the law and works. Namely, it's the order of grace. God's grace. And the more immediate problem is the fact that, that, that every one of us, however, are sinners. All right? And, and, and under the law, sinners have forfeited the promise and we are, by our natural selves, heirs of wrath. That's what Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin, what do we get? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, when sinners remain under the law, there's no hope. But when a sinner puts his faith and his trust in Jesus and the grace that is supplied to forgive our sins, to cover us, and to not count them against us on that day of judgment, man, there's a difference. I want to inherit that. So that brings us to the conclusion, which is an amazing adjustment to our circumstances. Romans 4.16. That's why it depends on faith, Paul says in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Can you imagine what a miserable place heaven would be if people got there by their own good works? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you think about it. I mean, for all eternity, all you'd be hearing about is people bragging about how they got there. Right? You know, I mean, it, it, and, and it, it'd be, you know, that they did this and they'd be talking about how big their mansion is because of what they had done to get into heaven. It'd be like a, a sitting around with a bunch of old, fat high school chums who've just grown up and now 50 years later are reuniting together and they're talking about, you remember that time I made that tackle against the Blue Jays in Washington? What a game that was, you know? Or, or yeah, well, I could throw the football across the Missouri River. I mean, I had an arm back then, you know? We're bragging about all of our exploits and all of our good things and our accomplishments and and you look at them they're going you guys you out of shape <laughs> old fellas earned your way here uh, you know what's going to make heaven so amazing is that every single person who's going to be there say they're going to say you know i got here by the grace of god i didn't do anything he did it all i just simply believed that he could do it all Amen? From the Apostle Paul to the thief on the cross to you and to me everyone's going to have the same answer. I'm here but for the grace of God go I. Don't you want to receive that blessing? Let's pray. Father, we know that it's nothing that we have done that deserves 
even a moment of your attention to listen to us even pray right now, let alone to have your son preparing a place for us there in heaven. Father, we are failures in life because we are sinners. We can't even follow ten commandments, let alone if there were hundreds. And yet you love us and you want us to be there. And so you've provided that way through your son Jesus. If we will simply put our faith and our trust in him and that your promise is real and true, that your grace is sufficient even for me. Thank you. That's in his name, your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.